Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. would like to draw our attention this morning to the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 28, the first 16 verses. And as we begin, I'm reminded of something that an author by the name of Milton Vincent said. He says this, the New Testament teaches that Christians ought to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians do. It's what the Old Testament, that's what the New Testament talks about, isn't it? That we need to hear the gospel. I need to hear the gospel this morning. You need to hear the gospel this morning. I was reminded of a, a pastor once who was approached by a parishioner who said, we wish that you could just preach the gospel every Sunday. Now, there could be wrong reasons, misunderstanding of why the parishioner said that. And the pastor replied, well, I'm sorry, I can't do that. But I think the proper response is, that is what I'm doing. I am preaching the gospel every Sunday. That's what I want to hear every Sunday. I hope that's what you want to hear every Sunday is the gospel. So let's read God's word together. Would you stand with me again as we read out of reverence and respect for God's word? The first 16 verses of Acts 28. After we were brought safely through, when we, had, when we then learned that the island was called Malta, the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. 
They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune to come to him, they changed their minds and said, he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail in, the, in a ship and that had wintered on, in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium, and after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putolia, Putoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apis and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, please give me physical strength and spiritual energy to preach your word with faithfulness, clarity, authority, passion, wisdom, humility, and liberty. Amen. You may be seated. For many of us, there can be nothing more discouraging than setbacks. You can experience a setback in your health. You can experience a setback in your job or in the progression of your career. You can experience a setback in your relationships, setback in your parenting, a setback for the perfect plan that you had laid out for your life can experience a financial setback. You've experienced them this week, most likely. You might even think that your whole life is one big setback. Let's be clear, setbacks are not easy. Setbacks can have adverse effects on our attitudes. Setbacks are not met often with acceptance and joy and open arms in our hearts, but rather with displeasure and sadness and worry and frustration And maybe even sometimes complaining. We all know setbacks that we have experienced in certain realms, but have you ever had a setback in your spiritual life? Ever struggle and meet resistance in your walk with Jesus Christ? Ever a setback in the church or in ministry? Something happens and you end up somewhere you did not plan, somewhere you did not expect. You say something like, 
Now what, God? We aren't supposed to be here. There was a, a different trajectory that we were on. We had a different plan, a different journey. God, we had everything envisioned, and it was so perfect, so flawless. Ministry would have gone great if we didn't have to face this setback. We would have done more quicker, more efficiently, more successfully, maybe even more faithfully, but this setback has really, well, set us back. If this hindrance, this obstacle would be removed, we could do so much more. We could get back to the important stuff. Would it ever be a thought, why is the Holy Spirit hindering us? And could it ever be that what we might view as the setbacks to spreading the message of the gospel, the Spirit has so steered to be the specifics of the spreading of the gospel message. We think, no, no, this isn't the way it's supposed to work, but the Spirit says, this is exactly the way it is supposed to happen. This is specifically what I had intended all along. Don't view this as a setback to ministry. Don't view this as something that is making ministry or spreading of the gospel hindered, but see it specifically how the Lord is so ordained for you to do ministry. This is how, this is where the gospel must be spread and what you are ordained to do. This is how the gospel must be spread And this setback can also be used for your sanctification, for your growth, for your maturing as a Christian. Could not this have been a temptation with Paul and his companions, Luke and Aristarchus? Jesus had come to Paul, promised Paul that he would testify about him in Rome, so they boarded a a ship as Paul has been arrested. He's headed toward Rome to finish out his trial before Caesar. God is going to get them to Rome. There's work for them even to do in Rome. There's important ministry to do in Rome. They were going there to spread the gospel before some of the most prominent and important people in the capital of the entire empire. And in the middle of their journey, what happens? A setback. Massive hurricane force storm comes upon their ship. And the initial trip that was supposed to happen along the coast of this island called Crete, a mere 40-mile journey turned into a 590-mile journey. A small trip that was only to take a few days took a few weeks, and finally the ship is run ashore. The waves tear the ship apart. They have no idea where they are. They have no idea of what's going to happen next. They either swim ashore or they float on pieces of the ship to the shore. But Paul knows exactly what's going to happen there. Ministry is going to happen there. The spreading of the gospel is even going to happen there. And so it's necessary and important that this text has been so recorded in God's Word. It's been read for almost 2,000 years. And let us not forget that it's been written down for a reason. This has been written down for our instruction, for our understanding, for our encouragement, for our correction, for our transformation, for our worship. So what is it that we can learn 
when we feel that we are in a setback that might hinder the ministry that God has called us to do as Christians. Three things I want us to go over today in regards to that. Three warnings. Number one, be careful not to avoid the message that rescues. Be careful not to avoid the message that rescues. Look at how the very first part of the verse begins. Verse 1, after we were brought through safely. They had just been through a huge storm for two or more weeks, and they were brought safely through the storm. Does anything strike you about how Luke says this? First, notice here, this is a personal act. This is not random chance or coincidence. This isn't blind luck that got them through the storm. No, they were brought safely through the storm. Second, notice how it is written. It's written passively. This is not, we brought ourselves through the storm. It is not, we had enough perseverance and strength and ingenuity to last through the storm and bring ourselves safely through the storm. No, being passive means that someone else did this personal act. The question we should ask is, who brought them safely through the storm? Who was it? It was God. God rescued them from the storm. God saved them from the storm. God was over the storm and was stronger than the storm and was able to bring them safely through. If God had brought them safely through then God had also brought them to this island. They learned that this island is called Malta. Malta is about 60 miles south of Sicily. And by God's providence, it's not far from the route that their ship would have taken to get them to Rome. So not only did God bring them safely through the storm, He kept them on track to get to Rome. Malta was originally settled by Phoenicians, and in the Phoenician language, Malta means refuge. It's here that all those from the ship have arrived on this beach, and they are met by the locals called native people, or literally they're called barbarians. Now, when we use the word barbarian or barbaric, there is a derogatory connotation that goes along with that. Luke, however, doesn't have that same connotation. When he uses this idea of the people being barbarians, it's basically a designation that these are non-Greek-speaking people. The empire at large spoke the Greek language, but these people did not speak the Greek language. So that's the designation that Luke uses for them. And it's here, as these natives meet the people from the ship, that we see God's common grace. These people showed unusual or extraordinary kindness to them when they arrive. They built a fire. They welcomed them. It's raining. It's cold. The people are soaking wet. And Paul was one of those gathering sticks for the fire. And it appears that as Paul was gathering sticks, he also gathered a snake in his pile, or as it's called here, a viper. The snake then, being warmed by the heat, came and fastened itself to Paul's hand. This caused quite an alarm for the the people. In fact, the term that Paul used here, or that Luke uses here for creature, can be referred to as a dangerous animal or a venomous snake. 
This has caused some debate because today there are no venomous snakes on the island, and the one that is slightly venomous is not considered deadly and was introduced to the island in the 1800s. But I do not believe this needs to be a stumbling block for us here. Just because there are no known indigenous snakes, venomous snakes, today does not mean that there were not venomous snakes on the island in Paul's day. In fact, if you were to look at the history books of another island, Ireland, which once had poisonous snakes but does not have poisonous snakes any longer, you see something very similar. Other evidence that this was, in fact, a venomous snake is the reaction of the locals. They seem to know this kind of snake. They have seen this snake bite people before, and they know what to look for. They were waiting for Paul either to swell up or to drop down dead. What is somewhat fascinating is that when you are bitten by a poisonous snake, the first thing to do is to get it off you. The longer it holds on and chews down into you, the more venom is released into the bloodstream. In reading the account, all the native people around the fire see the snake dangling from Paul's hand. And to them, this is not a good sign. In fact, in their minds, this is a bad omen. And so they come to a conclusion. Paul is a bad man. That's why this has happened to him. He's a murderer. He's done something terrible. Isn't this the way the world around us oftentimes thinks? Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. Snake bites don't happen to good people. Therefore, Paul must be bad. The world still struggles with that today because things happen in the world that don't make sense. And when things happen in the world and and people don't have an understanding of what's going on around them, they see these things happen, they are confused. Rightly so confused because they have cut out sovereign God from the equation of life. The answers to the questions of life don't get any easier if you get rid of God. They only become more impossible and only become more foolish. So they make this exclamation. Justice has not allowed him to live. In their pagan culture, justice, this is justice with a capital J, that is justice in their minds was a god, little g. She was the daughter of Zeus who oversaw human justice. It is their belief that this pagan deity has caused this to happen to Paul. She has found Paul to be guilty and deserving of death. That is why this has happened. What might people call this today? karma. What goes around comes around. Everyone will get what they rightly and justly deserve eventually. There's just one problem. There's no thing as karma. I believe there is a reason why people hold on to these notions, and it's this. They have been innately given the sense of justice. 
That is, all mankind has this idea, this perception of justice. Justice, where the right will be justified, vindicated, and the wrong will be rightly punished. We know what justice is, and on one level, everyone longs for it. Everyone wants what is wrong to be made right. Everyone wants what is evil and wicked to receive what is due them. Our world screams for justice, demands justice, fights for justice until they are in the crosshairs of justice. Everyone has a sense of being held accountable for how they live their life. They sense a reckoning, there's a judgment, there's justice. The only problem is that left to ourselves, left to our sin, we would rightly receive what we deserve from God. And this is where everyone stands before a righteous and holy God. You are a sinner and you deserve God's righteous justice for your sin. No one is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. This is not some capricious man-invented deity who wields some form of injustice over mankind saying, be good, be moral, be pure, or else... No, this is the almighty, sovereign, infinite creator of the universe that all mankind, that everyone has rebelled against, sinned against, and fought against. True justice is not just for murderers. True justice is not just for those who have done really, really bad things. True justice is not just for the most despicable and horrible and vile people that we could imagine in society. True justice, God's punishment For our sin is death, and it is for everyone. It is His justice that we rightly deserve because we are sinners. For the wages of sin is death. Yet, this is not the complete picture of God. Because God, in His deep love and vast grace, made a way for you not to receive the just punishment that you so deserve. He planned and he has caused his just punishment to fall upon another, to be received and experienced by one who drank the cup of God's wrath, who was nailed on the cross, who died in agonizing death, being forsaken by his own father. It is Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, who died for ruined sinners, the righteous for the ungodly, the innocent for the guilty, the sinless for the sinful. And how did he do it? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He took our sin upon himself. God laid upon him the iniquity of us all, and God's justice and judgment was poured out on him for our sin, and he died. God's true justice would not have allowed Paul to live or allow any of us to live. But God gives life to those who deserve death. God's justice has been completely satisfied by Christ and through his death, God no longer has any wrath in his heart against those who are his own. That's mercy and that is grace, my friends. That is God's grace and it is that grace that you desperately desperately need to know. It's only by his grace that you are able to live. 
It's only by His grace that you're able to stand before Him as one who is counted righteous. It's only by His grace that you are able to go on without worry, without the, light, the, the threat lingering in your mind of when is the other shoe going to drop? I fear too many people today in our world. I fear too many people who call themselves Christians hold on to a similar view of God these pagan people on the island of Malta held about their fake goddess justice. How many people fear that God is out to get them? God is not out to get you. God is out to save you. God is out to rescue you. Isn't that why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world? The world was already condemned in its sin. People were already perishing because of their sin. But Jesus came to remove people from their condemned and perishing state and give them the gift of eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you hold the pagan belief that God is out to get you? Might you ever fall into that trap? This faulty way of thinking. Answer this question. Why do bad things happen to you? How many might say it's because God is out to get them? As if you think that he's going to zap you. Or is plotting for ways to bring discomfort or pain into your lives just for the fun of it. We do know from scriptures that the Lord does discipline those who are his. But why does he do that? Because He loves us. His discipline stems from His love for us and is done for our benefit, for our good, for our own holiness. The view that God is out to get you is not in line with the view of God's love. It's not holding on to the view the Bible gives us that God is merciful and gracious. It runs opposite to the truth of the Bible. If you in your life are waiting for the other shoe to drop... If you are faithful, if you are fearful that God is somehow out to get you, I would say this, that reveals more about who you are than about who God really is. Why might you be waiting for the other shoe to drop from God? You might be waiting if you are holding on or clinging to some secret sin. If there is sin that is weighing you down, you are unwilling to repent, forsake it. Your conscience is warning you. Here's what you must come to terms with. Your secret sin is not so secret in the eyes of God. He knows, and He does not want you to hold on to your sin. He wants you to kill your sin, to run away from your sin, to turn and repent of your sin, and take the drastic actions necessary so that it stays dead. Repent and receive the fullness of God's love for you. You might be waiting for the other shoe to drop if you struggle with forgiveness and are weighed down by the burden of past sins. You ask yourself, has God really forgiven me of all that I have done? 
the greatness of your past sins might fill your view and overwhelm you. How can God forgive all that I've done? Does he really no longer hold any of these past sins against me? Has he really cleared my account of all wrongdoings? Listen to this, my dear brother or sister, from Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were once dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That's where your sins have gone, my friends. They've gone to the cross. They've been nailed to the cross. They are done. They are finished. They are forgiven. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Or maybe you are waiting for the other shoe to drop because your belief about God is fundamentally flawed and you do not know His grace. What am I saying? You need to be rescued by God today. You need to be rescued from His wrath and condemnation and judgment. You need the justice that you so deserve to fall on someone else. And the good news is God has provided a way for you to be allowed to live. That way of life only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. It comes through submitting to Christ by following Him and trusting Him in His work on the cross and in His resurrection from the dead believing that it is because of Christ that you are saved, that it is because of Christ that you can be considered righteous before God, that it is because of Christ that you can stand on that final day and be declared not guilty. This is the message of rescue, and the message of rescue leads to validation. Isn't this what happens with Paul? He doesn't die. They are waiting for him to swell up and suddenly fall over dead, but it doesn't happen. The serpent's penetrating poison is not allowed to affect Paul's body. He is protected by his God, and he is vindicated by his God. He is actually vindicated by his circumstances, not condemned by his circumstances. Paul is not guilty. He hasn't done anything wrong to be a prisoner on the ship, and in fact, Not only is Paul vindicated, but Christianity and the gospel message is also vindicated. And don't think for a second that this happened by coincidence or by chance or accident. God knew exactly what he was doing. God put that viper there for a reason. And what a picture was put on display right before the very eyes of the natives on Malta. They have trouble, though, understanding. They change their minds about Paul. He's not a murderer. Maybe he's a god, little g. Paul and Barnabas were thought to be gods in the city of Lystra, but they cry out to the crowd, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
We know that Paul would not have accepted this. He was not a God. He was there to point them to the true God, the living God, the God who is above all and over all, the rescuing, saving, protecting God who provides for those who trust in Him. This is the message that you cannot avoid, the message of rescue. Number two, be careful not to ignore the message that restores Be careful not to ignore the message that restores. After this event, the chief man of the island of Malta met them. The title, chief man or first man, is an unconventional title. And for for many years, it was thought strange that Luke would use this title for this man. Until archaeologists discovered a plaque using this very title for someone on the island of Malta. So Luke is a reliable historian of these events. But this man, Publius, welcomes them, shows them hospitality for three days, makes it known to them that his father is ill and that his father has a fever and dysentery. Fever could have been what's known as the Maltese fever, which you could contract from drinking Maltese goat's milk. So if you ever drink goat's milk, make sure it's not from Malta. Dysentery was likely due to unclean living conditions. Paul, however, though, is willing to go to the chief man's father. It's there that Paul prays for him. Paul shows that his dependence and his trust are in the Lord. This is not Paul's power. This was not Paul's doing. It is God working through Paul. Paul then lays his hands on him and heals him. And after this, many people on the island who had diseases came to him and were cured. They were restored. Isn't this the picture that we are given? People who had particular diseases, particular problems, because they, like us, live in a fallen world. And Paul, the prisoner, (laughs) is freeing people from their prison of disease. Paul, through the power of Christ, had the ability to heal, to cure, to restore. And might this event even remind us of one done by Jesus, an event that does not take too much to see the similarities One place we see this is in Luke 4, 38-41. Here it is that Simon Peter hosts Jesus at his house. Simon Peter's mother-in-law lays ill with a fever. Jesus stands over her and rebukes the fever and it leaves her immediately. We're told then that all those who had any sickness were brought to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. I think we have to see a connection between what Jesus is doing in Luke 4 with what Paul is doing here in Acts 28. Obviously, we know that Jesus is performing the miracles, healings out of his own divine authority and power, whereas Paul is performing the miraculous healings not out of his own power and authority, but again, out of the power and authority of Jesus Christ. These are the diseases that have infested the fallen world in which we live, and they are being done away with by the Messiah. It is Jesus who has the power and authority to restore that which is broken. 
It is Jesus who has the authority and power to heal those who are diseased. It is Jesus who has the power and authority to to cleanse those who are unclean. It is Jesus who has the power and authority to eradicate the fallenness of our world and bring transformation to lives. A transformation where people are brought back into line with the true image of God in which they were created. What Jesus did himself and what he did through Paul in eradicating these disease-filled people gives us hope for the future. A future eternal home where death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. Why? Because the former things have passed away. These people experienced a visible, physical change in their bodies. There was no denying that. And it was again a testimony to the truth of the message that Paul was proclaiming. It was a testimony to the truth of Jesus Christ, of who He is and what He has done. It is a testimony of what Jesus Christ can do in lives to bring about radical transformation. A transformation that not only is spiritual, but also a transfer, uh, not only physical, but a transformation that is also spiritual. Where God takes people out of the domain of darkness and delivers them into the kingdom of His beloved Son. It was another visible lesson for the people. We do not know how much the natives of the island and those who were of the ship were able to communicate since these natives were non-Greek-speaking people and those from the ship would have been Greek-speaking people. But what we do know is that we are given two very vivid and very real pictures. Pictures of things that these people had never seen before, pictures of things that these people had never experienced before, pictures of the gospel put on display before them that they were not to miss. Paul and his companions spent three months with them. Knowing what we know about Paul, I bet that he was trying to preach and proclaim and show and demonstrate and relate the saving gospel message of Jesus Christ to them any way that he could. What is missing from Malta is no explicit gospel presentation from Paul, but very explicit and shocking events that would point them to the truth. We see these people honor them with many honors, give them whatever they need. Something was different about these people. Something was different about this Paul, and they had seen it. They knew it. They had experienced this restoration that can only come from the reigning King Jesus. Number three, be careful not to minimize the message that reverberates. Be careful not to minimize the message that reverberates. Finally, Paul and his companions and all the soldiers were back on track, heading to Rome. They board the ship, and they board this ship that has two figureheads, it says on there. These two figureheads were the two sons of Zeus, Castor and Pollux. They were supposed to be the protectors of sailors. And I find it somewhat ironic that they board a ship with these two figureheads on it because we know already who has been protecting Paul and his companions. It's been God who's been protecting them all along the way. It hasn't been these sons of Zeus who have been protecting them. It's been God who's been protecting them, who's been caring for them, who's been watching over them. 
And they make their way to Rome. And to get to the heart of these last few verses, we should be struck with the fact that as Paul and his companions are traveling, they begin to see Christians in these areas. First, they meet Christians in Puteoli, some 130 miles away from Rome. There were also Christians who heard that Paul was coming to Rome and they met them in the form of Appius and three taverns, some 40 and 50 miles from Rome. And in this way, that they came into Rome. What's amazing, Paul had written a letter, an epistle to the Roman church three years earlier. And now this is the first experience that Paul has traveling through Italy. He's never been to Rome before. He's never ministered in this area before. But what has happened? The message of the gospel has spread. It's been reverberating throughout the region, and the risen Lord had continuing to build up and work in His church. What is Paul's reaction as he meets these fellow believers? He thanks God. He expresses gratitude for the work that the Lord has done in them. He thanks God that God has been saving and strengthening and persevering His people. Fellow Christians are a reason to give thanks to God. Is that how you approach one another? With thankfulness in your hearts to God for those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you thank God for fellow Christians? Is your heart filled with thankfulness when you see them, when you are with them, when you get to enjoy sweet fellowship with one another? Paul also took courage. It could also be said this way, that it gave him boldness. Here is Paul in chains, making his way to Rome, and his fellow Christians give him cause to take courage as he faced what lay ahead in Rome. These people had already been living for Christ in Rome and in Italy. They had already been spreading the message of the gospel. And Paul takes courage that he can and will persevere in the ministry that lay ahead of him. Would you pray and continue to pray that this message of the gospel reverberates and spreads and takes a hold of people's hearts and lives, that it would grip people that you know, people that you've been praying for, people that you love? Would you have thankfulness in your heart for what you see God doing in your life and in your ministry and in what the Lord is doing in the lives of those around you? But would it also give you courage and boldness and determination to be so used of the Lord to spread His good news? Has it reverberated in your heart and in your life and gone out of you to others? And maybe today you hear this gospel message for the first time and it's beginning to reverberate in your heart. It's tugging at your heartstrings. It's saying to you, I need to be saved. I am a sinner and I need forgiveness. I feel the weight of my sin upon me. Don't ignore that reverberation today. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ.
Let it fill your heart. And when it fills your heart, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when you submit to Him and when all of your affections are, are drawn to Him, it does something. It comes out of you. It reverberates out of you to other people. It spreads. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians. He writes Philippians while he is in Rome, while he is in chains. And listen to what Paul says. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You hear that? I'm in chains. What's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Is that what you rejoice in? If Christ is proclaimed, I don't care what else happens, I rejoice in that. That's what needs to happen. That's the single focus. Christ be proclaimed. Let Christ reverberate throughout our community. Let Christ reverberate throughout our world, and then we will rejoice. Christ is proclaimed, we rejoice that the earth may be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would take your truth, plant it in our hearts, that we might hear your words and so be changed and transformed and grow. And Lord, if there is someone here today who needs to be born again, needs to be saved, needs to trust in you for the very first time, we pray that they would do that. We pray that they would no longer have to wait for the other shoe to drop. That they would say, I know Christ trusting in Him fully for everything in my life. And there is no other shoe to drop because Jesus has paid it all, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed me white as snow. I'm no longer condemned. I'm no longer guilty. I'm God's child. May that message continue to be made known through us each day, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.